Hello. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good. Can't complain. There's actually there's actually one thing before we we start. Uh, well, before I start asking some questions, because there are, there are a lot of things I want to talk to you about. Do you remember the cake you gifted me with at my birthday party? Oh yeah, I I totally remember it, and I went specifically to that uh, uh, shop to have my own birthday cake made because I remember that they were so good. <laughs> oh really? Did you get the same one? No, because it I had to order it for many people in advance, so I I chose another recipe, but it was very good as well. Okay, okay, because like. I mean, it was like an interpretation of modern interpretation of Sacha. I think that's the way it was. And whenever now I eat Sacha, Torte, I always think I wish I had this modern interpretation instead of the classic one because it's actually so much better. <laughs> like, it was so great. Yeah. There's really amazing bakery. Like, did you know it from before? Like, or did you just try it out the first time then? Well, basically, last year when uh, I met you, Jay, just to give some context, uh, I had just moved to Turin, so I, mm -hmm. I've never lived in Turin before 2022, and uh, I was living, uh, I was renting a room uh, a bit south of the city, and then I looked up uh, in Google Maps uh, for bakeries, and it was ra ranked uh, like 4.8 uh, stars out oh, of wow. 5 or something like that. Very good reviews. Yeah. So as a usual millennial way of, <laughs> of reasoning, I went there and it was uh, indeed quite good bakery. Yeah, no, it was amazing. And I remember like how it was devoured. I think I even have some pictures uh, of, <laughs> of different people really going wild with the cake. <laughs> no, that was, that was great. I just wanted to mention that, that that was really, really, really um, amazing. Like something I've never tasted since. Originally, you're from Rome, right? No, I'm from Florence. Huh? Florence, no. I'm kind of close to safe, uh, whom you already yeah. interviewed. Because but it's from Prato. Did you know safe from before? Vento? No, funny enough, I met him uh, at the Vento program last year. <laughs> okay. And yeah, I mean, Florence isn't small, right? It's like a couple hundred thousand people. Yeah, well, it's on the me medium size of cities in Italy. It's also in the center of Italy, so it's difficult to confuse it with Rome, which is the capital in the center of Italy. Yeah. But uh, we are a bit uh, under the radar. Florence? <laughs> you think Florence is under the radar? Mm, I know. What, how do you say when we keep... A low profile. We keep we keep a low profile, not because we want. We are very narcissistic and snob, <laughs> but we are only known for uh, Botticelli's Venere, Uffizi Gallery for the portraits yeah. and, and paintings and and stuff. And other than art uh, and museums, uh, we did we as a city. I'm speaking. We didn't manage to renew and be competitive in today's market so this is one of the reasons i found myself uh, moving from my home city twice once when i went to london 
in 2017. And once when I moved again to Turin, and now I'm I'm living a good life in Turin, which mixes <laughs> history with uh, some industrial importance, let's say, yeah, some power and some um, uh, also technological advancement. That's more or mm. less my opinion about Italian landscape. Ah, okay, yeah. The uh, I went to Florence. When was it? One and a half years ago. Uh, so basically, the year, half a year before the 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 storm camp, the Vento storm camp, and I went to Florence, stayed a few days there, and then like stayed, went to Modena and from there to Bologna, and like it was it was kind of funny because like Florence is it's it's really famous. Like from an Austrian perspective, like everyone knows Florence, everyone wants to go there at least once uh, to see like all the, the beautiful architecture. And really, you could really see that Florence had so much money in the past, but just doesn't seem to have much money now. <laughs> uh, or at least like that, that was kind of like the impression. Whereas like Bologna, where we came after, or also like Turin, uh, you can see that there's enough money now, like to for the to to keep everything, um, like let's say the the way it was built, like a lot of um, restoration work being done. Um, as I saw, that was that was kind of interesting. Yeah, from from a tourist point of view, of course, in Italy you would always want to visit Venice because of the half uh, sea, the the so-called Laguna. Yeah. And um, so it's special architecture, but you would never want to go to Venice because they they designed the iPhone, right? Yeah. So that's more or less what's happening in Italy. Same for Florence, yeah. you see the dome and then you are not aware of the fact that, uh, I don't know, they are doing biotech. For example, in Pisa, which is close to Florence, mm-hmm. where I went to university, it's kind of an important center for... Uh, biotech and biomedical engineering and uh, even exoskeletons but still it's just some little towns or cities around Tuscany or Italy and and we haven't managed to do the Silicon Valley thing in Italy or the we have Milan which is kind of a London because it's the city is the financial capital financial center and also for fashion but yeah i mean i shouldn't start ranting about (laughs) (laughs) how italy could improve (laughs) i mean to be fair you are taking part in the improvement of italy yes i'm trying really proactive in that true (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah one of the reasons uh why I moved back to Italy from London because there were some incentives for uh, Italians that come back to your country. You you are even mm. paying less taxes. Oh, really? And then you're encouraged to like build a family by a house. But in my case, instead of building a family, I went straight on to the task of building a business. So... <laughs> So I found this vent opportunity, which was a, a, a incubation incubator program for venture building, and I joined in the hope of uh, starting my own startup. And uh, 
apparently for now I succeeded because given the seed round, we have been working for one year or so. We hired uh, uh, many six people. Like wow. we are now ten. Tomorrow we would be wow. eleven with an intern. Oh wow! Yeah. So the fact, I mean, it's very nice that there is some VC money yeah. going around in north of Italy, and this paying is paying uh, salaries for the founders. I mean, myself and the other founders, as well as the employees. Employees are mm -hmm. very happy. Uh, to work in this uh, innovative, innovative uh, business, maybe I, I will, I will describe it later better. Uh, yeah, but so to finish to answering uh, what I mean, your uh, kind of question. Yes, I am trying to improve the situation in Italy. Yeah, no, definitely. Like maybe. Uh, let's go a little bit into this. Could you give like a quick introduction so just that so people know your background? Apparently me as well, because I, I mixed up that you're from Florence and not from Rome. So maybe there are some other things uh, I don't recall perfectly either. And then also like talk about the business, talk about the Olean. Okay. <laughs> Let me put everything in order. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, hi, listeners uh, to this uh, wonderful podcast from Jay. My name is Chiara, uh, and um, my background is in uh, biomedical engineering and then bionics engineering master. Uh, but then I ended up falling in love with uh, artificial intelligence. So I worked uh, for a bit in London in a in a big company and then in a startup and that's where i learned what a startup was from the inside basically because in italy in at university i had only heard about startups as fancy companies in silicon valley probably so uh, the startup I was working with is called Data Sign. It has been acquired by Shutterstock uh, in 2021. Wow. Yeah, because um, our uh, focus was on uh, classifying uh, the likability, the clickability, you could say, of ads uh, on Facebook based mm -hmm. on the images and the text. So we were building a machine learning model for each client, for each customer, based on their past uh, ads campaigns. Mm -hmm. And um, after this very cool experience, I went back to Italy. It was also because of COVID and all the uh, chaos that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. created. <laughs> Plus Brexit, right? I mean, oh, also, yeah, also because of Brexit. Uh, yeah, UK didn't uh, feel welcoming. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah. much anymore yeah. so when I, went, when I came back to Italy I worked in, a, in another big company and I understood that a big company wasn't uh, good enough for me in, in terms sorry uh, my attitude is to be able to 
make a difference with the code I write, uh, like be very in close uh, relationship with the product, uh, with the outcomes mm -hmm. uh, of the business. So I understood that startup was the answer and uh, I found out of this opportunity for uh, incubation and venture building uh, in Turin and I went to Turin where I met Jay. So <laughs> this is last year. Uh, last year I worked with uh, Roberto and Giovanni at first and then we, uh, we also included a medium. Uh, we, we were all participants to the program. And um, after a careful uh, research about the market uh, of uh, big companies such as insurances and banks, uh, we found out uh, a very important need, uh, which is the need to quantify the risk uh, related to climate change. Mm -hmm. And this is also a very interesting topic uh, for whoever is interested in environment uh, or, uh, I mean, the future of humanity as a whole. So given that we were all uh, very uh, how environmentally savvy, for example, we get uh, frustrated when we are not sure our plastic bottle is going into the plastic uh, Uh, recycling uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah we are this kind of um, uh, recycled nazi let's say <laughs> <laughs> me, me and my co-founders uh, so we, we we had this idea of um, using satellite data that are scalable and can bring you knowledge about all all the parts of the world and then mm -hmm. can help you assess the situation in terms of uh, climate and infrastructures uh, and, and so uh, processing this data and uh, putting them into a machine learning algorithm we can provide uh, a scalable source of information for businesses uh, currently mainly banks uh, which are really uh, in, a, in a hurry to to uh, to how do you say to Buy, buy this data but specifically they need this data because of a law coming from the European yeah. Union which is called the European Bank Authority EBA okay. and is requesting banks to uh, find uh, a, a, um, they should sorry I, 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 I tend to forget the, the correct verb to use <laughs> so Mm. banks should collect uh, uh, information on the whole portfolio which means like a whole country of uh, mortgages and businesses in order to stress test uh, their uh, finances uh, against uh, climate events so what happened recently with SVB which is Silicon Valley Bank you, I, mm -hmm. I'm sure you heard about it Yeah, it's famous because Viewing it from a European perspective, uh, we see that uh, American US banks sometimes are less regulated, so mm -hmm. they might take uh, um, a lot of uh, risk, uh, or uh, in this case, they were uh, uh, 
um, financing. Uh, I mean, they they had put money in, on loans, etc. Yeah. So on the other side, uh, in Europe, we are very very strictly regulated, so we don't yeah. more or less allow for a bank to go through this high high risk but of course then it comes also with sometimes uh, slow decisions bureaucracy and people are kind of complaining because us is more free and gets stuff done quicker yeah so the what you're trying to feel is like the need for better risk assessment from banks when it comes to loaning out money Ah uh, yeah, for f- the startup, yeah, th- that's the the goal of the startup. Yeah. So and the yeah. startup is called Eolian. We don't do wind power generation or stuff <laughs> only because we are called Eolian. We actually study weather and climate data and ge- geospatial data, which is a very fancy type of data, I have to say. <laughs> and and a lot of people that we want to hire we, when we put uh, our uh, job posts on LinkedIn and, and so on, they write, yeah, we really like to write, to work for an environmental uh, company for green energy. And we're like, no, it's mm. not green energy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I actually read on your website, like the origin of the name Eolian. And it's actually quite complex. Like you really put a lot of thoughts, like the... What was it, the Aeolian, like the, the the wind, the god of wind? And then like the the meaning? Yeah, there are a lot of uh, subtle uh, refer- references in, in, the, yeah. in the name. Aeolus, uh, some, I don't know if it's the Greek or Roman name for this uh, mm-hmm. wind god. And uh, of course, because we met at Vento, the program which means Vento, mm-hmm. which means wind. But also, Eolian is a musical uh, type yeah. of um, scale. Well, you, because gr- Greek, uh, the the musical scales are um, all uh, paired with the Greek name of some islands. Uh, I, I'm not very I I don't know why it's kind of the ancient origins of music more or less. Yeah. So so yeah, you get the Aeolian Islands uh, also in Europe there are those so-called Aeolian Islands. Yeah. And uh, and we added the double n at the end because we are doing your yeah. networks. <laughs> yeah, <I> recall that. <laughs> I am fine. I feel like this was your touch, wasn't it? Sorry. That was your touch on the name, yeah, right? Also. And finally, <laughs> I forgot to mention that EO, the initials, stand for Earth Observation. <laughs> ah, right, 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 right. It's, it's so many things, yeah. Um, so to, just to, to clarify, so you're doing climate models or weather models? Climate models, yeah, good, climate. good point. Because a weather model is uh, in the short term, and I mean, it can be useful for some type of data, but usually since we are doing uh, modeling uh, for some years in advance, uh, it's more about uh, climate data. Mm-hmm. Uh, how like how can one imagine uh, 
a climate model? Like, uh, what kind of information are you using? And also, like, what is the the time frame that you're actually trying to look at and also predict? Yeah, good question. There, there are a lot of different pieces in what we are building. First, mm-hmm. I would like to say that uh, one thing is the vision of, of the of the company, which is what we want to do in different years when we will have uh, more uh, revenue, more traction, and more employees. And this, the other thing is what uh, we we can do month one, what we can do at month six, uh, and and so on. Because mm-hmm. for a startup, uh, you need you have a limited number of people and limited number of resources, even computational at, at the beginning. And you need to proceed uh, iteratively. I, I don't know if I said it correctly. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so first thing uh, for us was to collect uh, physical data about the geo- geography of places, like the elevation with respect to the sea. I don't know mm-hmm. if it, it's called... Uh, DEM, which stands for, uh, uh, okay, I, 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 I have it in Italian <laughs> okay. sometimes. Uh, the DEM uh, is digi- digital elevation model. Okay. Okay. Yeah. With the digital elevation model, you know if a place is closer or not to the sea. Mm-hmm. Then, and and you get an idea of this the geographical situation of the place you are targeting. Mm-hmm. Then we are collecting information about the human infrastructures or um, constructions or lack of them. For example, if it's a residential area, if it's agricultural, mm-hmm. uh, how it's how it's used the the land. So it's called mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a dataset that is called land cover or land use. Mm-hmm. And then you move to the uh, climate and kind of the atmosphere. So there are uh, uh, different uh, ranges of models, like there are models for for up to 50 or 100 years okay. and different scenarios. One scenario is like uh, we are increasing by one degree Celsius in uh, 50 years. Another mm-hmm. scenario, we're increasing by two degrees Celsius. I'm sorry for the people who reason in Fahrenheit, but I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I'm terrible <laughs> with Fahrenheit. So um, it, there are some very critical scenarios, which are like uh, uh, a couple of Celsius degrees uh, in, in some years, uh, which will mean probably a lot of the, places in the world uh, could become even not livable uh, because they become too arid, uh, too dry, too, um, you know, too hot. Uh, And so you can combine all of these uh, models that have been done by other researchers. It's not our own uh, stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The startup is just using up the different models. and then uh, you kind of combine everything together and you try to make it in a format that is that is actionable for banks. Because up to now, a lot of the discourse have been uh, 
the scientific community discussing with uh, uh, the states, uh, like the uh, oh, uh, non-organ, non-governative organizations, yeah. you know. Yeah. And they're like saying, "Come on, guys! If we do not in- decrease our CO two production, then we are uh, uh, we are in a, in, in a lot of trouble." <laughs> But it is being rarely converted into actionable insights on the market. On like you are going to lose the mortgage, the the value of the house, etc., etc. So another um, uh, another challenge, another uh, value proposition for our customers is actually to provide them climate data, climate risk uh, uh, from from research, from physics, uh, from science, mm-hmm. but is in the format uh, that uh, means something to the bank. Mm, okay, okay. So it's really making it tangible for like your target audience, so in this case, banks. Uh, so they, they actually know, given different like development scenarios, this might be the outcome and this might then kind of like be the, the consequences mm-hmm. for you in a given area. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. How, how do you feel about the, the climate models? I know there's been, there's been a lot of talk uh, and uh, it's, it's really hard to keep on top of all those things. Uh, I, I really have to say I haven't looked into climate models yet myself. So like how how happy are you with the with the current state of the research on that? Happy. I mean, I'm happy that there are a lot of people researching it. I'm not happy yeah. with the situation with the, the world is going in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't want to turn your podcast into a, a sad conversation. So I will just make uh, a quick uh, joke and then I will move to research. <laughs> but uh, I mean, in, in the latest, in my latest years of life, I was, I am in a position to maybe think of having children because I am a woman uh, with an age to, for having children. But uh, so a part of me doesn't want to have children that will grow up uh, in a world that might not be livable anymore. <laughs> so, so kind of, this is, I mean, very de- destructive millennial thinking. I'm sorry. So <laughs> cynical maybe. Uh, so to come back to uh, a, a more hopeful uh, view, uh, I mean, I think uh, working on a startup uh, like Eolian uh, contributes to the the, uh, the effort uh, of uh, humanity in uh, dealing with this change, mm. uh, and uh, um, I, the the founders weren't the most knowledgeable people on the topic. Uh, we we had the idea that this was. Uh, both innovative, important, uh, and could uh, get revenue, which is the important yeah. thing for a business. Is not a non-profit. Uh, a, yeah, is not. Yes, yeah, not a non-profit. A non-profit initiative. So, 
I mean, even not-for-profit initiative get money. Make revenue. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what you mean. In the end, you, so, you really want to be profitable and you want to scale it as a startup. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for explaining it, Jay. And, uh, and what I saw is that people are really happy to come to work on this. Uh, we hired uh, a person that had the background specifically on environmental engineering. <laughs> and uh, we have two people with a PhD in physics. <laughs> so... Uh, I am a very rational person, scientific mindset. Uh, I I always want to proceed with data-driven decisions and uh, just uh, take the most rational route to yeah. solve a problem. So that is my um, attitude. Hmm. Okay, okay. Yeah, I mean, how can, like, given, given that there are different models, I guess that also the, the outcome varies a lot, like, based on the different uh, hypotheses that is being factored in, right? Like, how can, how can one imagine, like, let's put it that way, if it would be just, like, if it would be as simple as just using a model, I guess uh, a lot of banks could just do it themselves. Like if it would be as simple as taking a paper um, from some open access or maybe paid and then just implementing that. I mean, they have a lot of people for risk and data management within uh, big banks as well. Like how and where is it that you add the value to it? Well, partially, most of the knowledge on the topic uh, has been uh, deepened uh, and delved into by insurances because they monetize the risk. And up yeah. to now, banks uh, were mostly focused on the financial risk, like credit risk, or uh, yeah. when we got the COVID pandemic, some banks started to do the stress that when there is a, hoard, a worldwide pandemic. But then, as I told you, ABA, the, the authority for banking, uh, is, uh, is requiring the climate uh, risk uh, um, uh, assessment uh, and banks are a bit uh, caught uh, by surprise let's say uh, okay. not all banks especially not the not the, the smallest one let's say. you can yeah. you know a, a bank relatively small uh, with respect to big banks let's say yeah. so considering that there are different sized banks uh, not all of them already were ready for uh, assessing the risk uh, the climate related risk so this is one of the uh, good uh, timing of, of our market uh, yeah I'm perfect sorry for... when did the EU introduce the need for for banks to factor it in sorry can you repeat the question like when was the this law or like not the law but the when did the European Union like put into action the act that banks have to factor it in? Yeah, yeah, they kind of wrote it in 2022, and now they are enforcing it, asking for the banks to find the source of data during 23 and 24. Oh wow! So they okay. will have to have it ready in this and the next year. Ooh. Okay, so. 
you said like the the smaller banks are more or are less well equipped to to handle it so maybe unicredit uh, has the resources to actually do it in-house or maybe already like has someone working on that but especially like medium and smaller sized banks those are the, the companies you develop for uh, yeah, I don't want to say specifically which bank. And by the way, yeah. I think we are entering in a in a territory that uh, my co-founder and CEO <laughs> and CFO and CFO of anything uh, not technical, Roberto could answer very well. So I don't want to give you the wrong answer. Yeah. Okay. Um, I uh, what I wanted to say was so I I, I cannot say like Unicredit uh, yes and the other not. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, the need for climate risk assessment is widespread with insurances, mm-hmm. banks, infrastructure, public sector even. But considering mm-hmm. this ABA law, the, the banks uh, are our number one customer because of their urgency to yeah. get the data. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, given that uh, climate risk was not their main business, uh, most of them yeah. were not equipped <laughs> and are just used to buy the data outside. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense as well. Hmm. Okay. So currently it's for you to translate the information you get from using existing climate models, uh, like how do you call it, like preparing it in a way for, for the banks to make it easy, digestible, and also like update it with, with the, the newest information that is coming in. But also you said like you're gathering data yourself or you're trying to get data yourself from like satellite data and basically building on top like your own models. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, that's why it's yeah. exciting. A lot of layers. Uh, basically, it's not, uh, cli- it's not only climate models because uh, we have an approach that is uh, based on different uh, uh, catastrophic events. Uh, yeah. So the different risks, uh, as uh, even identified by ABA, are... Uh, uh, so, some are called chronic and some are uh, uh, ca- catastrophic, like they happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I, I keep uh, misnoming stuff. I, I keep forgetting the correct name, but we will pretend it's not happening. <laughs> so if, if you are uh, curious about the topic, don't forget to... to um, to visit the Aeolian website, but uh, yeah. consider that I, <laughs> I consider that I am the, the tech person dealing with data. So co- let's come coming back to our to my ex- expertise. I was saying we are dealing with uh, flood, uh, drought, uh, landslides, uh, wildfires, and so on. Uh, a total of uh, 15 or 16 will be uh, are, um, are in the making like in the next year, I mean in 2024. But this year we are addressing the main ones uh, that banks really need, which are the four or five that I mentioned to you. So those single natural events uh, have different uh, 
predictors, different features that are uh, important to assess the entity, the uh, magnitude of the damage uh, that they will cause. So we can either, some, sometimes we find the data already computed, uh, already processed, uh, already available from some uh, research centers, uh, but sometimes, uh, I'm, most of the times, we integrate them with our own models uh, because maybe we find models that are only covering uh, a specific area, geographical area, but given that we have uh, scalable satellite uh, data for the whole uh, world, potentially, even if now we are focusing on Europe, yeah. uh, you can recreate the same model. The, you, you train your model on some areas and then you do inference on, on unco areas that weren't covered originally yeah. by the original research and so on. Yeah. And then just to be on the techie side of the, of the conversation, <laughs> the interesting part is uh, when you want to scale, uh, you need computational power, you need uh, yeah. to, to not take uh, days to compute everything. Uh, yeah. you, you need to store your data in the cloud and make them available for quick uh, um, reading and writing. Uh, so... Even if the researchers have, have done a model that works, uh, for example, uh, for a region of Austria um, mm -hmm. or, or uh, for a region of central Italy where I'm from, uh, you still um, want to run it uh, all over Italy, all, all over Austria, yeah. uh, so that the bank actually will uh, leverage their, uh, their properties in the different geographies. Mm, okay 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 gotcha yeah i mean it makes sense that uh, uh for research purposes you're more focusing on let's say creating like a proof of concept or just focusing on like one specific part because as you said to to calculate it for uh for bigger regions costs a lot of money and uh, uh it's really i guess it's only worth putting the money in if you if you either have like a huge sponsor that is really interested in the inside or if someone's actually paying uh, for the outcome of it. Um, I, I guess uh, the cloud providers will uh, will earn a lot of money um, due to you guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. For now, we've been using some uh, free credits that are given to startups. Yeah. So once you incorporate, they are giving you... Uh, all the major players are giving you yeah. free credits, but yeah. I mean, only for it, it, it was covering some months of work and then maybe even this summer we will start paying. Ah, uh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I bet, uh, that this is highly, highly, uh, computational expensive work. <laughs> it is, uh, but, uh, it it scales well with the customers because you do the mm. computation for the geographies and then you serve a number of customers uh, yeah. anyway. So that's what makes it a startup because the yeah the initial costs are kind of fixed because of the computation, but then you can have revenue growing, growing uh, yeah. without growing uh, exponentially. 
their competition uh, and, and so on. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, so what is like the, the biggest challenge you're facing right now in your day-to-day? Yeah, I know this is a question you do to your... <laughs> to your uh, I mean, like, w- what keeps you up at night? Yes. What keeps me up? <laughs> yeah, I think personally, the... Sometimes uh, I am uh, worried uh, that uh, I won't be a good leader for my employees because I think uh, I am really very focused on human relationships. Maybe one of the reasons I liked working in a startup was because of the limited environment. And I know that uh, happy employees make uh, a good product yeah I am uh, I am most uh, mostly uh, my sorry I cannot find the word like a concern for you? Yeah, my main concern is always that people are working happily from which then hopefully comes proficiently yeah. and efficient. I mean, also sometimes uh, if you are not working efficiently, you are frustrated and you start not yeah. being happy. So yeah. my employees could be unhappy because of my leadership uh, or because or yeah, my co-founders, etc., yeah. Or because the some things that don't work, so to to piece my to uh, how do you say? How do I fight this uh, worry that keeps me mm-hmm. up? As as that you asked in the company, we implement. Uh, um to, uh, once every two weeks uh, a retrospective uh, we look at what is going mm-hmm. good and what is going uh, not so good and what can be improved uh, and we think about how it can be improved so there is always the willingness to in, to improve what doesn't work you sh- we would never surrender to a situation that uh, is not uh, satisfying. Uh-huh. So even if noticing that things are not going well can yeah. be frustrating, the fact that we are noticing and trying to act upon it uh, is what it is what gives me hope. Hope. <laughs> uh-huh. well, that's a cool approach, though. Like I mean. I guess it's 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 easy to say, uh, but uh, it feels like it's really something that that has like very high priority for you, not to let anything slide, but to really make sure that things are, let's say, in order, like properly talked through, uh, and not just uh, ignored. I feel like that's already worth. Uh, a whole lot 
especially in like a fast moving space that you're in yeah i mean it's my personality maybe some yeah. some people could say if you're in a startup you should focus on the marketing thing and maybe we should oh, yeah. we we are we are going to focus on the marketing as well uh, but i kind of leave it to other co-founders or other employees because how many co-founders are you now sorry like three or four co-founders we are four okay so Emilio joined as a co-founder yeah uh, during the summer yeah. and um, basically i'm like uh, is inside me there is this belief that uh, um happy people will be productive and will take care of the different aspects. Like uh, the customers will come if the people are working well. The the customers will be happy when we fix a bug uh, if people are listening to the customer because they are working well. Kind of, probably this is naive. I don't know. Maybe in one year we can speak again and I will tell you, you know, when you do a startup, the most stressing stuff is... (laughs) You know. Yeah, that's also I really like. Uh, I really like to ask people who are like fully in the process of uh, founding right now uh, this question because you you might listen to it in six months, a year from now, two years from now, and you're just gonna be like, oh, this actually worked out well, or well, this is still the number one issue that <laughs> keeps me up at night. <laughs> who knows? <laughs> Definitely oh, really cool. interesting to live uh, in. A trace. Yeah. Hmm. So you you said you're still in in Turin. So I, are you still at OGR? Yes, we are working uh, in, in two six desks uh, offices that we are renting mm-hmm. there. Nice. And maybe we will move somewhere else uh, because they initially the of the OGR place building facility also had uh, a piano to yeah. play in the refectory yeah but this year they moved it away and we are like uh, ha- half of the <laughs> half, half half of the rent value has has dropped in our opinion <laughs> <laughs> oh, i still remember like during the during the storm camp uh did you remember when um uh, Federico started playing an Audi. Ah, yeah, yeah. I remember Federico will always play an Audi. <laughs> yeah. This was such a surreal situation, actually. <laughs> like, everyone, like, in this super say, competitive environment of, like, a five-day assessment center. And then everyone just goes in there and starts small talking. He just sits down and plays an Audi. <laughs> everyone's just like, what the hell is going on? People got out their phones. And he was just, like, playing it free, <laughs> freely. And did you know? Like afterwards, I went to him and I was like, wow, this was so amazing. Like, how long have you been playing the piano? And he was like, uh, I started five months ago. <laughs> and I was like, no, you're kidding me. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I only noticed one <laughs> piece. <laughs> That's just how I started. I just wanted to play this one piece and now I'm moving to the next one. I was just like, but it's actually genius because you can show off like not only show off but you actually can like enjoy performing something right anyway he did great i think i remember him doing like one mistake but apart from that he was he was perfect like just like this 
Yeah, good point. It was like MVP of, of piano player. <laughs> yes, exactly. You see, if you like it, master the first piece, and then you maybe you move on, or otherwise you drop it. So all like you guys have been have been playing on the piano. Yeah, only up only last year, and then uh, yeah. they moved the piano from December January, and we are very sad. But we do uh, like some evenings we organize uh, uh, events uh, with the colleagues uh, for example we go play board games uh, we could do karaoke night or something uh, so nice. trying to to also offer uh, 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 Funny activities uh, out of out of out of the office, yeah. even if maybe you shouldn't uh, make your employees uh, stay with you like All fifty <laughs> hours uh, a week. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah no, no, I get what you mean. So I mean, they also have their freedom. We have our freedom, and yeah. So, are there lots of like real early stage startups at OGR right now? Like, is there a lot of interaction happening, or is it mainly just the big corporate players who have their innovation offices there? Yeah, you know, it's half and half. There, okay. The main offices are taken by big uh, companies that sometimes leave them even almost empty, which, yeah. which is not the best. Uh, arrangement microsoft google cloud like uh leonardo yeah yeah those big huge. names yeah. and then there are the small startups we cannot afford uh, a true office like we do um, <laughs> and uh, they they stay in the open space uh there are our friends from paper books uh, sometimes our uh, friends uh, from rome uh, mirko that you spoke with he visits yeah. Turin, he comes to okay. visit us. Then this year there was a new edition of Vento, so a, yeah. a new intake of uh, founders and startups maybe will stay, will uh, uh, tag along, I don't know. <laughs> they doubled the cohort size, right? Mm, no, they only went from 30 to 40 people. Ah, okay, okay. Because it looked like so many more people on the pictures. Ah. But maybe there was just me. Cool. Like, have you have you met a lot of the people yet? Yeah, because I'm a networking person, <laughs> so I jumped right in. Yeah, yeah. I introduced myself. Then they were looking up uh, at Eolian, uh, like, "Oh, you are our uh, uh, older brothers." Like in Japanese, when you say, "Ah, you're my senpai." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and. Uh, and they were asking for advice, like uh, when you incorporate uh, and you go to the notary in Italy, I don't know, yeah. uh, a lot of bureaucracy involved and the taxes and uh, hiring and, and talking with the VC and so on. Yeah. So they try to treat us as mentors, maybe, which yeah. is very nice because... I am the type of person that likes to give back to the community. I, I also uh, 
have mentors from last year and I I take advantage of their advice so I mean yeah it's always a circle yeah I'm I'm sure some of the the current mentor participants are going to listen to this so maybe they're going to hit you up afterwards <laughs> for some <laughs> mentoring <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. <laughs> I mean, they know. Sometimes when when I walk the corridor, we we stop and chat yeah. a bit, and they update me on their struggles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm. I bet there are lots of struggles. <laughs> uh, okay, but it's nice. So OGR seems like it hasn't changed, um, and you're like twelve desks now. That's actually. It's actually quite a few. Nice. Yeah. And speaking about struggles uh, of a startupper, uh, I want to tell you, because I've, I've been telling this uh, to my friends, uh, uh, to other people that joined the Vento program, uh, that I, I'm writing a book, uh, like a novel on the last year. <laughs> That's also why I like to keep updated Whoa. with the guys from the from this year, uh, maybe for a for a chapter two, you know, volume two. <laughs> but um, um, it all started because I'm a very uh, pensive, reflective person. So I was uh, thinking back to everything that happened last year, from meeting some strangers, more or less becoming friends and deciding to found a startup from scratch and so on, and raising mm. capital, et cetera, et cetera. So looking back at what it had have been, I tried to put it in, in words. I'm writing it in English because I think it can be read by more people. Yeah. So uh, as you said, uh, when you ask the question, what you're struggling now, with uh, and maybe in six months is not the same also so th all those mm, all those uh, uh, reflections all, mm -hmm. all those things I've been writing I've, I've been also thinking about it uh, like oh yeah because six months ago I was worried about this and so on and this was the problem so yeah, yeah. So you're journaling those things down or is it more, is it a different kind of form of keeping track? Yeah, no, the funny thing is not, is that I'm not doing it uh, online. So I'm not journaling. For example, Emilio had, had a journal during Vento and I'm asking him to share <laughs> with me the content, but I am kind of doing a, a biographical or a memory search uh, kind of uh, reconstructing the thing uh, re retelling uh. huh. okay I'm, I'm, so you're sitting down now and trying to recall all the things that have happened yeah because after one year I mean it's still uh, close enough for yeah. me to remember it and also I'm using uh, fake names for the characters so I'm making it more like a novel and <laughs> you know oh that's super cool you have to let me know once it's out <laughs> uh, 
I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading this. Yeah, I put some couple of chapters on Wattpad, but I think Wattpad is only a place for Wattpad. fan fictions now. So I'm okay. trying to see what what is the best platform for people that want to read about startups. <laughs> but again, <laughs> if I only publish five chapters and then the rest of the book is unfinished, the people are going to wait for a long time. So I'm always writing <laughs> in the back. <laughs> okay. Okay, gotcha. But that's actually, that's really, really cool that you're like, first of all, doing this specific thing, but that like in general, also like, it's been a year, you're at 11 people now. Uh, there's so much happening, especially in the space that you're in and like startup life. I've, I've talked to so many founders uh, and I want to say most of them are like, almost unable to really think of anything else than all the things that keep them up at night because there are just so many. So it's really cool that you have like, I don't know, a passion project. It's just like a side thing that actually that you actually enjoy and do on the side. Yeah, yeah. I kind of given up watching Netflix after dinner. I, I write my book. So... <laughs> Nice. I feel like creating is much better than consuming um, as a hobby. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> but I'm also an avid listener of podcasts, uh, yeah. especially when I like do house chores or the laundry. I mm. I turn on some podcasts, and sometimes yeah. I also turn on on my way from Jay. I really um, recommend no. it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, it's really cool. What what other podcasts are you listening to? What else? Yeah, I I think my favorite genre is true crime. Ah, so okay. all the investigative podcasts, both from US and from uh, some Italian podcasts, mm -hmm. and uh, then a lot about uh, businesses. For example, podcasts that have been retelling uh, major failures uh, for example the recent uh, ftx uh, mm -hmm. or uh, terranos uh, yes. <laughs> or uh, we work uh, yeah yeah how how is that been going are you following up on on we work uh, not really and i heard that the founder has now uh, what was his name uh, newman newman yeah is now has another startup. Uh, no, really? Someone's funding him? Yeah, which is one of the most interesting parts because it, it, it it's always important to think uh, that uh, failure makes you also more knowledgeable. And, and this is the mindset of uh, uh, you know, uh, American VC. Yeah, yeah. Like European are risk averse, and it's like, oh no, you you made a, a big uh, chaos with we work, <laughs> but maybe you learn something. I don't know. Maybe this idea is better. I don't know. I don't know how it works. And I, I as I said, I only heard uh, about his new endeavor recently. Okay. I didn't uh, listen about it in detail. 
but it's a typical thing that uh, goes around social media, which is uh, please yeah. learn from your failures. Uh, it's only you can only come to success after a number yeah. of mistakes. Uh, yeah, uh, you know certainly, and it's it's also like very important to not shut the door to everyone who has failed in the past because as you said there's a lot of value that comes from reflecting on those mistakes uh, why i was surprised with him is because wasn't there a lot of like not ftx kind of fraud but just like a lot of misleading things and mismanaging of of certain like w whenever it gets like a little bit in the or gray zone of illegality or like even complete illegality. I, I'm always fascinated when people are still willing to to hand out money. Yeah, I think it was always in a gray area because he got <laughs> a lot of money from the Japanese, uh, uh, from SoftBank, I don't remember the name. And um, he told him, uh, please be reckless. Uh, like, I give you a lot of money, make them count, invest them. And he was a bit... Uh, over uh, yeah <laughs> excited by this opportunity and then he was asking for uh, loans uh, by the banks who would grant loans to him just because he was uh, a CEO of um, a successful startup yeah plus they had a lot of real estate right like i mean at least least real estate or i think they they even owned a lot of real estate right something uh, yeah like that like he opened a childcare, child school, something like that with his mm. wife. Uh, it was like we learn instead of we work. <laughs> and then he became right. a bit of a cult of his personality yeah. as a CEO with his employees. So that's more or less what went wrong. But if you analyze it, like before we work, he did uh, a reasonable uh, a business which was called Green Desk. So I think okay. these are the considerations that VC are doing yeah. of course if I were a VC I wouldn't probably really make uh, <laughs> entering business with uh, this guy but yeah. as a podcast listener <laughs> I, I enjoy <laughs> learning more uh, yeah I mean those podcasts uh, bring you to the boundaries of things that can be done uh, by yes. humans, uh, like you will never, mm, you will never meet a serial killer. But if you listen to true crime podcast, uh, you yeah. listen to the boundaries of what humans can do. Yeah. So, so, so sorry for being creepy, but <laughs> I no, think a lot no, of people no. can relate. Okay. Yes, like the the extraordinary and crazy and very unlikely scenarios are what draw attention right like the extreme cases yeah yeah and this leads I, I i sorry for kind of switching the topic but this leads me to another thing of my life experience um which is uh, i have an attitude for uh, being competitive or putting me in challenging situations. Uh, 
So probably this is why I went to do a startup instead of being a, a safe employee with a good salary, yeah. um, like I was in 2021. And, um, and I also have a tendency to follow or to be kind of early adopter. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in the rest of the world, the startup is probably mainstream anyway. <laughs> but I, or may, maybe because we live in our social bubbles, uh, because maybe yeah. outside of our social bub- social media bubble, a startup is still something unusual. Uh, but before the startup uh, in 2015, I started my master and I fell in love with uh, machine learning. And then in 2016, uh, I saw AlphaGo winning against uh, the uh, world, uh, the, one of the best uh, Go players, Lissidol. And I, and I really thought, wow, I want to work with artificial intelligence. So I kind of was an early adopter of artificial intelligence. I mean, I, I was into the, the topic and my university didn't uh, teach a lot of what is now common knowledge because it was really, you know, 2016, we have convolutional networks, but there was nothing about uh, natural language processing uh, and the transformers that have improved the, you know, Google Google search up to now that we have ChatGPT. Yeah. So, I mean, now... I still wonder, is ChatGPT very mainstream? Is AI very mainstream? Or is it in my bubble? Because I still meet people that don't know about ChatGPT. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there are those. But I, I, would, I feel like with, with ChatGPT, I had conversations now with people of all age groups from all different parts of the world. So I feel like this one has has conquered the world quite like quickly. I'd say, I mean, my grandmother doesn't know about it, but she also <laughs> has never Googled in her life. So I feel like those people you kind of have to set aside as a different different group. Uh, but like otherwise, um, I feel like it's it's pretty. Also because the media has picked up on it, right? Like uh, just the other day, I saw like in a very kind of like conservative, smaller scale newspaper. They let, they even used JetGPT to write a pro and con uh, column, article, whatever, uh, about JetGPT. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, I feel like there, it has become quite mainstream. But like, like uh, okay, so you, you said you fell in love with it five, six, seven years ago, um, what has excited you about it most? Or what is the most exciting application you find right now? Uh, well, uh, I always, when I've been in, interviewed for some jobs, uh, I, I would always say this, uh, that I, when I started my bachelor in biomedical engineering, I wanted to study engineering to solve problems. Like solve problems with the engineering mindset, and uh, and then I learned that you could solve, you could teach computers to solve problems in your place, which is what you do with machine learning. So 
if you are lazy enough, you you just <laughs> you found a, a very good way to to live, right? You you just teach yeah. computer to solve problems in your place, and then you take the the glory. <laughs> so. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what fascinated me about artificial intelligence. You always had uh, a, a, a computer which would be able to analyze uh, a, a huge amount of data yeah. that a human would grow tired of watching, but mm. uh, using statistical rules uh, set up by mathematicians uh, uh, and humans. So as long as you can tame your machine, then uh, you're going to profit from its uh, uh, lack of fatigue. It's, uh, you know, the, the, you just give it electricity, you stay yeah. seated and you wait for, for the outcome. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I gotcha. Are you like, are you worried in any way? about the current technological progress and like uh, the different voices that are advocating for a more responsible or slower development cycles? Uh, I, okay, let's give my two pence, but I'm not <laughs> entitled in any way. So dear listeners, just consider my opinion as a as the opinion of a person that has been working in in this uh, uh, in this sector uh, i the idea i got from reading some opinions and articles is that uh, there is no way and no real gain in slowing down research on, on artificial intelligence but uh, the very important focus uh, is always uh, ethics uh, and uh, uh, bias applied to AI because this has been an issue for a lot of years, uh, not only now that we uh, we we play with ChatGPT and, and as, as we said, it's mainstream. Uh, it has been known that uh, feeding... Uh, bias data you would have uh, um, you would have uh, algorithms to help uh, jurors uh, in uh, some uh, uh, in some uh, districts in US uh, that would uh, uh, routinely uh, um, consider uh, uh, people from uh, a lower a, a poor background or people for, of color, uh, the, the algorithm would consider those people uh, um, uh, more dangerous. Yeah. Uh, like yeah. Uh, more likely to commit crimes. Yeah. More likely to commit crimes. Or uh, there was an algorithm that uh, would uh, uh, hire uh, or rate uh, with the higher... Uh, score a curriculum, a CV resume mm -hmm. from uh, a, a man instead of a woman. Yeah. Even if you yeah. mask the, the, the gender, the there are a lot yeah. of um, elements in your bio that would hint on your uh, gender. So 
even when we had the, the uh, computer vision algorithm, uh, you would they would uh, score like for facial recognition, they would be better with the white people than with people of color. Yeah. Every sort of bias, and it was always introduced by human data. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, like oversampling in one. Yeah. Side. So why why slowing down research uh, yeah. when there is so much research to be done uh, in terms of uh, uh, fixing uh, bias data sets <laughs> yeah no I totally agree uh, I also feel like all those I mean apart from that they're not like game theoretical or economically just not not feasible to, to implement anyways uh, it's it's a bit of a weird ask, uh, especially with all the faulty applications that are out there at this moment. Mm. Yeah, I mean, but it has all, it has always been uh, interesting for me. Uh, I, I cannot avoid, uh, even if it's a challenge, and it, I mean. <laughs> Part of me is just uh, looking for uh, uh, things to to do and study while we wait for the humanity to leave the planet or <laughs> for, for good. <laughs> I mean, because maybe one day we will leave the planet, we will go on another planet because planet Earth won't be livable anymore, like in millions of years. Yeah. So possible yeah i mean life can offer you a lot of stuff to deepen your knowledge about uh, while you wait yeah. for the next generations <laughs> <laughs> have you like talking about going to another space or another planet have you ever played paper clips actually no there is this really crazy game uh so it a guy, I think he was like already in his 30s or 40s, I don't remember. Uh, he just wanted to teach himself JavaScript. So he created this super easy UI game, basically like white and black numbers. And initially, you would just have to click on a button to create paper clips. Hmm. And then you would sell those paper clips. And then you could buy like a machine that would give them every second, produce like a certain amount of paper clips. And then you would just like scale up your business. And uh, the better his JavaScript skills became, the crazier all the things you could buy or the, the next levels would become. And it goes really, really wild. Like you kind of start out with just producing paper clicks and then you kind of like conquer the world and then you end up with like supercomputers and like space invasion and then <laughs> so it's like complete wild but it kind of makes it like in a very very fun way so i can highly recommend you uh to to check it out it's a really fun fun game probably doesn't take longer than a couple of hours to to play through i think this Paperclip thing is uh, um, is 
is a topic of interest in media culture because you remind me of some TikTok or Instagram reels where they would show that they would swap stuff from a paper clip up until they get to a house. I don't know if you have <laughs> No, I never saw that one. It's a similar principle from the fact that you start with <laughs> nothing and then you proceed. Uh, But this was based on bargaining, uh, exchanging. Yeah. Uh, there's actually there's actually a really cool thing based on the same concept. Uh, Red Bull does once a year, like a race. Uh, so people start, I'm not sure if they even start all at the same place, but they all have to get... I think at one time it was like, get to Berlin in like a couple of days or like in weeks. And all they get is Red Bull. And so they <laughs> just have to go to strangers and either like trade it in or ask them for favors to like get from wherever they start to the next checkpoint where they get more Red Bull. <laughs> uh, and like camera teams are filmed or they kind of like have to film it with with their own cameras and send updates and you can kind of like vote on the different teams. And it's like super crazy. And uh, like you kind of, like, I mean, a, a lot of people are just like, okay, give me a Red Bull and I'm just going to like, you can just ride with me for the next 20 kilometers. <laughs> But then sometimes like I remember one team, they went to a guy and were like, hey, uh, we have to get to Berlin. And he was like, Oh yeah, cool. You can use my private chat. <laughs> and I just flew them there. <laughs> the guy just like this this action, like this being public and it's kind of like a this marketing. Um so <laughs> I feel like people are doing a lot of stuff, especially when they're on camera. <laughs> yeah, there is um, a similar um program in Italy. I don't watch it, but it's quite famous with the Italian TV watchers <laughs> and it's called I think uh, Beijing Express and the principle is the same they are followed by cameras and they have to trade or just ask for a favor to be uh, like a hitchhiker on the road yeah. and, and they bring you to somewhere yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah there's a lot of crazy crazy things you can do uh Like, I have, I have actually one more thing I wanted to talk to you about uh, startup-wise. Like, I mean, I, I saw that you shared a lot, uh, a lot like in the last month, like decisions you've made, like the budgeting thing. Uh, actually, like the one thing I really remember was like the keyboard, like oh. of, of one of your employees. It was such a cool keyboard. Yeah. I was actually looking at it and what, what is it kind of like moon something? Yeah, I think it's Zed Moonlander, something like Moonlanders. that. It was like, man, this would solve so many problems that I have. And it seems like so ergonomic, but like the price. Wow. Yeah, it's quite expensive. Uh, out of budget for me right now. <laughs> but uh, really, really cool. And like the way you communicated, the, like all your decision making, everything that sounded sounded very, like, like first of all, that you have like a good basis of communication and are really thinking of also the let's say, smaller, not customer-facing, immediate, like super important decisions um, that, that you said, like a lot of people 
might argue that as a startup, your job is to focus on marketing and sales and nothing else. Uh, so I find it really cool to to see that as well. What I wanted to ask is, have you like how are you tackling mental health? I mean, it's one hundred percent still super stressful. Uh, given that you only have a certain run rate, given that you have to scale, given that there's like a, a need for your product, like what are you doing in that regard? Yeah, thank you for the question and thank you for um, reminding me of uh, the LinkedIn posts. <laughs> um, because as I told you, employees are an investment are people that you train about your product and then they deliver so much to the product and if they get uh, upset uh, if if they don't like the environment they are going to leave uh, and you are losing a lot of months of work uh, just to find another valuable person so it, it, they are they really are an asset uh, and that's why we focus on the well-being it's like one of the uh, one of the values in our manifesto on the website and so i will answer you in two pieces uh, one is the well-being of the employees and one is my well-being <laughs> for for the employees uh, uh, we they have a budget for Choose, they, where they choose their own keyboard and mouse uh, or, and or head, headphones. Uh, and this is just the material part. Uh, and then uh, our first hire was uh, an HR person. He's called, uh, I think, head of people is his role. And uh, um, Alessandro is his name. Uh, he has um, a, a background uh, in uh, psychology. He's... Uh, he went to university as a psychologist mm -hmm. for uh, for for the work environment, and then has an experience uh, uh, both for hiring and also for dealing with the improvement uh, of the well-being of the employees in the company. And also worked in some startups, so he was a, a very interesting hire, even if not uh, the typical one. For, for a startup for the first employee so uh, Alessandro is doing uh, some coaching uh, sessions one mm -hmm. for each employee every month uh, where oh, wow. they discuss with him uh, their uh, uh, their career objectives uh, and how they are doing in the company if there is something that they want to improve even in the relationship with the the employee, the other colleagues or the co-founders. Uh, of course, uh, as co-founders, we are super open. Uh, our CEO, who is called uh, Roberto and is called Bobby, uh, has uh, a, a policy that you can ask to have breakfast with him and you can have the breakby, <laughs> which is breakfast with Bobby. <laughs> ah, okay. So... So, yeah, first rule is openness. Second is uh, a, a path uh, and the employee should feel followed, that should feel that they are important. And with these coaching sessions, they are um, planning uh, future steps for their career. If they want to 
be more managerial in future, if they want to be more technical, if they want to be technical, then which uh, um, uh, abilities, which um, uh, fields they want to uh, improve, uh, what skills, uh, like uh, going to a summer school, etc. Mm-hmm. So this is really important for us. Um, and then, and then we encourage people not to stay in the office over time. Uh, uh, with especially without reason, not like the Japanese way when you have to wait for your for your boss to leave before you leave. Yeah. Um, but sometimes what you notice is that people are willing to stay over time one day if they perceive that there is. A, a deadline that has to be met uh, or if uh, uh, staying uh, one evening uh, can and, and then you can uh, start uh, a computation for, for the computer then it can go on for 12 hours and then you g- get it back uh, the last the next morning yeah. so maybe we have a very uh, flexible uh, policy so if people stay one hour one day then the the next day they can skip one hour for example something like that okay. so yeah this is the part where how we deal with our employees uh, and of course we have remote working we um, yeah very flexible on this I mean uh, uh, for the Italian average we, we like to say <laughs> we are flexible okay so yeah, you can decide if you want to work from the office if you want to stay at home or is it like certain days where people are in the office or yeah it we we only have uh, a couple of important meetings uh, that we like to okay. be in presence, but not always uh, we can be in presence uh, even in okay. those. So a couple of days per month, uh, the presence is encouraged in the office, and then uh, uh, we have a person that uh, lives in completely another city in Italy, uh-huh. like okay. uh, on the east side of Italy. We are on the west side, and uh, yeah, and, and then you can arrange your uh, weekly schedule and stay at home and so on Be- because okay, we have okay. our own laptops uh, and then we work on the cloud so yeah so this was on the employee side on the founder side specifically for myself <laughs> um i really want to uh, give uh, uh, an encouragement and an insight to any other founder struggling uh, or living this experience uh, um, it's important that you uh, that you reflect on what you're doing what you're living what is uh, hurting you maybe so if you feel the need to speak with someone uh, that is entitled to speak with you <laughs> not only a friend uh, seek uh, uh, any uh, professional like a psychotherapist uh, etc i do that uh, i have a psychotherapist i've been seeing uh, for a while even before i started vento because first mm-hmm. i was dealing with uh, my breakup <laughs> then um, then i kind of uh, re- recovered focus on my life my career what i wanted to do not to be a, a a gray employee in a, in a in a nameless office uh, in a company, yeah. but uh, thanks to 
me talking with her, I understood uh, my attitude that, yeah, you know, going and trying to do a startup. So again, you're likely to face a lot of stress. Uh, and uh, uh, as a founder, I, I, yeah, I regularly meet with my psychotherapist, who is also, she also kind of uh, uh, works as a career coach, maybe. Because when you take on leadership roles, then you would need uh, like to work on your skills, uh, soft skills, etc. So I cannot recommend it enough. And uh, I think also my co-founders are seeing other uh, people uh, or web services or, uh, you know, consulting, psychology, etc. So really... I am a, a promoter of this. <laughs> How do you say? No, I'm not an influencer. I was not paid, but <laughs> no, no. But yeah, you, you, like you, not push, but like you. I guess promote others to talk to someone or get some professional help just to talk things through or. Also, when there is something more concrete to talk about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I want to add this. Sorry for being uh, long on this. Maybe Jay, <laughs> cut me no. when you want. <laughs> but um, specifically in Italy, uh, it has in the past it was uh, a bit uh, uh, frowned upon if a person wanted to see a therapist partially people thought that only people who need psychiatric help uh, like they they need to take pills uh, to balance their hormones and stuff would need to see a therapist that is completely wrong Uh, we are used to go to the doctor only when we are uh, um, when we have fever and we are uh, sick but uh, the therapist is not a doctor that is fixing your mental health. Uh, it's like uh, your personal trainer when you go to the gym. If you want to take care of your body to go to live a healthy life up until you are old, maybe you also want to take care of your brain to live a healthy, a mentally healthy life up until you are old. And yeah. that's why you want to speak uh, with a professional is not uh, a uh, is not a thing for uh, sick people, and in uh, Northern European countries, it is much more common to just uh, work on your mental health. In Italy, it's oh. still uh, um, it's still a bit uncommon. I didn't I didn't know that it was common in Northern European countries. I mean, like I. I would also agree that in in Austria, it has been stigmatized uh, when I was growing up. I want to say now more and more people are open about having like a some kind of therapist uh, for different sorts of of mental health related issues. Uh, but like in the US, especially on like the west side. 
on the West Coast, it's uh, it's fairly common. So like at Stanford, there's uh, a quite a let's say open relationship to that. There's also like um, university sponsored uh, psychologists you can talk to and therapists you can talk to at least short term, and then there's like a whole system where you can find therapists for long term. So I want to say there that's a complete different level of acceptance than it has uh, my experience in, in Central Europe. But it's uh, really cool. Also that you're so vocal about it, that you are that you don't mind just talking about. Like, exactly, right? Like, it, it's still, like, for me even, uh, like, I have this voice in my head that it's a bit like, okay, don't say that right now or like who, like whom you would mention that you that you see someone right uh it's a it's a little weird that that this is still a thing yeah no in my experience especially the people that are um refusing to speak with anyone are the people that uh, really need to need it the most <laughs> yeah i feel like a lot of people would profit from it yeah 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 it's a it's a weird topic you hmm. maybe because it it would mean you are open about not functioning 100 percent that there is something to fix in a way maybe that's why it is yeah, I think now we are entering another topic uh, that I am quite uh, vocal about, as I said, or uh, I am fond, <laughs> which is uh-huh. uh, uh, sexism, um, toxic masculinity, or, you know, feminism, in, in meaning that I am a feminist. So okay. I, what you told me makes me think about the fact that uh, socially... Uh, Men have been brought up uh, thinking that they don't need to share their emotions. They don't really speak about uh, their feelings. Mm-hmm. And considering that society is uh, uh, manly by design, is is uh, uh, um, is doesn't leave a lot of space for for female. Uh, thinking uh, up, up until recently. Uh, okay. if, if you think of a society that is focused on men and the way men do stuff, uh, men doesn't discuss their feelings, so men shouldn't seek a person to whom uh, to, to tell about them, their feelings. While uh, women have always been, uh, you know, chatting between uh, friends, uh, I, I think... Uh, you can easily recall when you were in high school, maybe your uh, uh, some young uh, some girls that you knew, and they would always be like, "Ah, and you know what I thought?" And he, um, I'm in love with the guy, etc., etc., which is very stereotyping. But at <laughs> least uh, society has said, "Okay, since you are a woman, you can speak about your feelings because it is perceived as." Uh, uh, maybe even uh, uh, um, how do you say uh, weak? Yeah, mm-hmm. 
So if you're a man, don't be weak. Don't discuss your feelings. If you're a woman, mm-hmm. everything that is weak is open to you. Discuss your feelings freely. <laughs> and then women are more likely to seek uh, the help of a therapist because they don't mind discussing how they feel. And if they don't speak with a therapist, at least they will speak with their friends, which will provide support. Yeah. And nobody will say, oh, she is seeking too much help. She's um, chatting and mm-hmm. speaking about, uh, you know, it's not common to think this about women. Nobody would. But then men are like taught to be eyes. I don't know to be I mean this is all centuries of uh, training and cultural bias right Mm -hmm. so then they are not at ease uh, discussing their feelings with their friends uh, let alone uh, seeking a professional Mm, okay like in your experience are also right now are there more female friends of yours who seek out professional like help or just like support uh, than male friends of yours? Or would you just say like in general how it is how it is perceived? Well, yeah, I think in general, now I haven't made the, the, the poll between my friends. Really. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, if I only... If I limit it to my very close friends, maybe I can, but there are too few. You know, when you do a sample in statistics, you yeah. should take uh, at least 30 yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. so, you need some power. I mean, yeah, even like uh, think of your family or I think about my family. I know mm. more female people, more women who went to the therapist than men. So, uh, it is really important that people that are against feminism understand that feminism is uh, for all the people because uh, toxic toxic masculinity has been damaging men a lot. Like, what are the things that you that you would include in in toxic masculinity? Uh, the the way that uh, uh, it's kind even sexism in general tends Mm -hmm. to portray uh, people in in a binary way so there is the man who is the stereotype of the man and the woman Mm -hmm. who is the stereotype of the woman so the stereotype of the woman is usually uh uh, degrading the, the her I mean, and everybody acknowledges it because like you think that uh, the, the people sexist people would think that the woman is weaker that, um, than a man uh, thinks uh, she would only stay in the kitchen and raise children and wouldn't be useful for uh, mental work etc etc but then when you go to the stereotype... Like you mean like historical speaking? Historically speaking, yeah. Then you go to the stereotype of the men and you go to toxic masculinity. You take some... some, some uh, 
uh, aspects of a character that are perceived as good, but then they are kind of pushed to the extremes. And any man who cannot relate to those uh, to those uh, standards starts to feel inadequate. So to come back to your question, what are the traits of a toxic, toxic masculinity? To be strong uh, no matter what. So you have to go to the gym and you have to gain your muscles. And if your muscles are not growing, you will get you will uh, ingest protein and strange drugs. Then uh, you have to provide for your family. So if you are not in a good career, you cannot afford a, a woman that has... Uh, a good salary with respect to you. You would always look for a woman that earns less than you. Or if you like children, maybe you are a pedophile because men are only supposed to go to work and then come back and have the find dinner ready, kind of that. No? So all the men who are in, uh, in the... Uh, in the spectrum of the possible men personalities, like the ones that likes to cook, for example, men chef, or the ones that like children would like to have a family and play with the kids, they all start to feel inadequate with respect to the toxic masculinity standard. And one mm. of the toxic masculinity traits that I didn't mention is do not ever express your emotions. You should always have the Superman uh, face, uh, <laughs> which I cannot uh, show to the people listening to the podcast, but it's usually your uh, uh, your mouth is uh, made of steel uh, and you don't uh, smile mm-hmm. and your uh, big eyebrows uh, are just horizontal. So, okay. you know, I could go on for a long time. <laughs> okay. Okay, gotcha. Like is this generally how you how you perceived uh like is this is this more something you perceive more strongly in in Italy or also like the same in when you were living in London? Uh, well, in Italy, it, it is quite strong because of our past with the um, fascist regime. But uh, as a as a Austrian from yeah, as, as a person from Middle Europe, what do you think? Did you relate in any way to what I told you, or was it uh, crazy stuff? <laughs> no, no. I mean, I I can definitely relate to like the the emotional part uh, that you were talking about. I mean, I. I want to say I had the, the luck I grew up with three very strong women in my life and my family. Uh, I, my, ma- my mother and also my two older sisters. Uh, so I, I want to say like when it comes to those uh, like typical male stereotypes, when it comes to express, expressing emotions, uh, this has always been more natural for me or more common for me just because that was like my environment but uh, I want to say that like I feel like I'm overly expressive uh, when it comes to that compared to the typical like the average 
a male in my age that you might meet in Austria uh, or like from my from my origin. So there's there's certainly something uh, that I would agree to. Uh, I'm I mean <laughs> I'm definitely not the when it comes to the the other values, especially like coming home to uh, a set table and a and a wife who takes care of of uh, the household and everything else. Uh, that's that's certainly nothing that that I want this way in my life. Also because I've been managing my own household for quite a while, and also enjoy cooking uh, with or for my my partner so uh but yeah there's definitely this stereotype uh and it's it is a stereotype so it is more often true than not although i have seen quite a change like in my generation uh but also like in the the generation before me like the generation of my parents and we're more and more especially men that i know just like within the family or friends of of uh my parents that are, let's say, breaking those classical roles, um, and as this is the the people I grew up with, I also don't see them as or not strictly at all. It's more like a matter of choice, and maybe, well, some cases a matter of economics, but primarily of preference and like given that I'm coming from a, I want to say, privileged uh, situation where, uh, like in Austria, most, like there are more women going to university than men. So you definitely have a shift in uh, in university, like in, in education, and then also like in availability of high quality, high paying jobs, etc. So all of this obviously has a has an influence as well. Cool. Very, very cool. Very nice to hear this. Uh, and uh, I think this comes back to my, my two, <laughs> two-faced uh, personality where I am cynical, but also hopeful, optimist, <laughs> because the cynical part is uh, uh, there was uh, a sexist society, but the optimistic mm-hmm. part is uh, millennials uh, and so on are, have, have grew up uh, with better examples uh, and uh, are getting more uh, um, uh, more mixed and more uh, equal so it's a pleasure to grow old uh, in in a place where old habits are, are dying down. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, f- I feel like Gen X has kind of broken a lot of those stereotypes, right? Like, uh, I feel like with the abolishment of the classical household of a husband, a wife, two to three children, stable, let's say, often Christian upbringing, at least in Americas and Central Europe, uh, like by removing this staple of our society, like a lot of rules have changed as well, right? Because if you if you go away from the one role model, you're kind of left with like oh, a lot of different opportunities, mm. and uh, 
now we've seen not just the role model or the, the example and then not following the example, but actually a lot of different paths uh, that people have been going. And I guess the next generations will even see more and more and more opportunities. Or maybe, as I've heard from some people who study socio-demographic things, <laughs> uh, that uh, there is a bit of a of a trend in the the newer generation more towards a conservative households again. I don't know if that will, if that how that will play out, but uh, there's definitely a lot of change happening, especially for us millennials, given that we are now forming the next generation of households, I guess, or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> let's see. Now we need to take over the the world because. <laughs> Uh, older generation have been uh, keeping uh, the the money and the wealth uh, for themselves. <laughs> so let's see. This is another socioeconomic uh, study that uh, is uh, has been uh, uh, that I've seen around social medias uh, or, or news um, that we are a bit lagging in uh, taking on taking over the wealth but let's see if they leave us any space <laughs> yeah i mean i mean yeah <laughs> i don't know I'm, I'm not i'm not well enough literate in in those uh in those studies to really make any prognosis but i feel like time moves on and things change and yeah i guess we are the next most economical strong generation that is coming up so let's see how things fall <laughs> uh all right i feel like we've we've covered quite a breadth of uh of different topics that was a lot of fun yeah me too thank you uh, i think uh, like uh, the the sun went down while we spoke, so now we yes. are <laughs> using the, the lights uh, of our <laughs> lamps so <laughs> uh i hope like uh if this video is get uploaded or if, like in the shorts people are still able to see our faces but i'm <laughs> i'm sure uh but uh like you you mentioned earlier that you're that you're a fan of mentoring the next generation or just generally people who are uh trying to do things that you already have some experience in is it okay for people to get in touch with you and if yes over which channel Oh, okay, yes, definitely. Thank you for asking. I am available. Usually, if you write me on LinkedIn, I will see your message. If you are not trying to sell me remote developers, I will not ignore you. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so my, my LinkedIn is uh, with my same name, which is uh, Chiara Mugnai, which uh, I can spell out uh, and you will find, I, I, I hope, in the title of the episode. But yeah, we'll include it in the description. Yeah, it's uh, C-H-I-A-R-A-M-U-G-N-A-I. And um, by the way, it means Miller, my surname, and is a very oh. common surname in any language. Like in, in, in German, it should be Müller. Yeah. <laughs> and um 
And so I think LinkedIn is the best because uh, as a typical millennial, my other social medias are not with my real name, are with a nickname uh, that is kind of a Japanese version because I don't like to be stalked uh, by uh, people. So for, for uh, mentoring or uh, professional related stuff, I'm very happy and very open to speak with you on LinkedIn. Don't worry, reach out to me. Okay, perfect. Well then, Chiara, thanks a lot for doing this. Um, Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And say hi to the guys for me. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to seeing and hearing also on LinkedIn like further stories of uh, how things are happening, the decision making, the cultural decisions you're making. Um, it's always a pleasure to to hear so many conscious thoughts being voiced. So, Thank you very much, Jay. Uh, I will try and keep posting stuff on LinkedIn because I've been silent for a while now. Uh, yeah. But uh, if you come around uh, touring, uh, let us know, mm. uh, of course. Yeah, uh, if I will uh, visit US again, uh, I will let you know. And uh, keep in touch. You are among the few... Uh, will have my actual phone number so you cannot you you can write me on on, <laughs> on messaging apps instead of using LinkedIn uh, there are people uh, thank you for listening <laughs> <laughs> well thanks everybody bye <laughs>